Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as molecular biologist, science communicator, coordinator at At Real Scientists, astropaleontology, dinosaur evangelist. Where are the giant robots? Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's edition to the Humans of Twitter list, Apuli Divasakera. Hi, Steve. Did I come even close? Uh, you got my last name right, but my first name's actually Upuli. Oh, dude, I'm sorry. That's okay. But like full marks getting my last name right. Like that's really impressive. It's wow. Well, this tells in there nicely, uh, Upuli. <laughs> In social settings, how do you introduce yourself? Oh, dear. Um, I think it's been sort of this 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 lifelong momentary cringe before I introduce myself, you know? <laughs> because, because as a kid, you can imagine there are many kinds of variations on my name. My name is unusual by any standard. Um, and then I grew up in Tasmania where I was like the only, Excellent. you know, ethnic kid at school. And so uh, in the entire school. <laughs> and so it would always be it's it's a plea. And then some, some sort of formation would would be spoken and be like, yep, that's fine. Just stick with that. Yep, let's do that. But <laughs> um, I think as I've grown up, I've definitely been a bit more sort of it's it's a pulley because there's no imaginary K, there's no imaginary M. Mm. Um, but variations include uh, a pulley was what I was called when I was little and yep. your pulley, which I thought was really fascinating rendition. So got a hint of the Kanye Wests about it. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> Goodness me. Well, thank you. How how does how does someone with the name Upoli come to find themselves in Tasmania? So what happened was uh, my father trained in economics. Actually, both my parents trained in economics and they were the first people in their families to go to uni when they were in Sri Lanka. Great. And uh, my father got a scholarship to go overseas to do his PhD and he had a choice between Manchester and Hobart and he well actually it was Manchester in Australia and he chose Australia and so he went from he started out in Perth and then ended up in Tasmania because he got to do a, a full PhD scholarship and so uh, that's how we ended up in Tasmania of all places uh, this this little um, place on the edge of the world. It, it doesn't come as best I could imagine not having been to Sri Lanka but it doesn't come more different to move to Tasmania from Sri Lanka absolutely um but at the same time I think that the weather's pretty similar to the other options so it was basically like moving to England but with gum trees (sighs) and um, my parents were always kind of I think they're sort of slightly disappointed because they'd sort of revved themselves up for um, meadows and and crumbling ruins and and pretty Tudor villages and they ended up in Tasmania. Hmm. Well, this is not what we thought it'd be like in the West. Well, you know, it's a nice place. The people are really nice. That's how we ended up in Tasmania. That's right. Instead, you got bins that look like penguins. Yeah, we did. (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah, but we, you know, it it was a lovely place to grow up. Um, we, I grew up, grew up in Hobart, uh, in, you know, in the shadow of Mount Wellington, and I had mm. a really wonderful childhood there. Even though, you know, my, my father was a student, and you know, uh, it was it was just really wonderful neighbours and wonderful classmates. 
and their parents were fantastic to us. So it was it was a lovely place to grow up. How do you describe your experience of family? My experience of family, oh, I guess mm. um, you know, for us, it's 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 very. Uh, we're very close. We're, you know, for us, it was just the, the nuclear family who moved over. So it was myself, my father and my mother, and my little brother came along when I was six and we were living mm-hmm. in Tasmania. And so it was always just the four of us and all of our relatives are actually overseas. Uh, so for us, that we're, we're very close-knit in that way. Uh, and so family means family and friendship at the same time I guess I know that sounds horribly corny but it's it's no, pretty reasonable. much the case yeah so I see my aunts and my uncles and my cousins maybe once every 20 years it's a bit tragic yeah. uh and I really got to go and see them again soon <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and pretty much most of my family so when we moved uh we lived in Tasmania for a few years then we moved back to Sri Lanka when I was 10 uh when we were there for about three and a half years and uh then we moved to Melbourne and so um, I, I haven't seen my extended family since we moved to Melbourne, um, but the rest of my family has have gone and visited. So I think I'm very much overdue for that visit. It's time for a homecoming. Yeah, it really is. And, and, and it was funny, when I, when I moved to Sri Lanka from Tasmania, I was really, um, I, I really didn't know what to think, I guess. I had some very vague ideas of what Sri Lanka was like. I had some very strong memories of, I had a few memories of when I was uh, living in Sri Lanka because I left when I was two, basically, mm-hmm. uh, one and two. And um, I, my, my last memory of my grandparents, or at least my grandfather, was taking a photo with uh, him and my grandmother. And I really distinctly remembered that, and I still do, uh, that last day, uh, taking photos with them. Uh, before we left and I also remember eating like white roses from my grandmother's rose bush because I was intent on eating flowers for some reason so um so that was that was the last visit and when I went moved to Sri Lanka when I was 10 it was it was quite a culture shock and um obviously I've been brought up um quite quite a westernized way um before we left my mother was sort of like um I guess we better think about Buddhism a bit maybe we should think about religion so I sort of grew up without much religion either <laughs> I could understand Sinhalese so my parents um are Sinhalese speaking and we're Sinhalese and so I could understand it but apparently no matter how hard they tried I would just keep answering them in English so even if they spoke to me in Sinhalese I'd just answer in English so I went there with this sort of language handicap and a kind of almost cultural handicap without having any idea of what to expect and so so it took me a bit of time to get used to it. And then by the time I had left, I'd sort of fallen in love with Sri Lanka a little bit as well um, because it's a really stunningly beautiful country. But when mm. we first went there, it was very uh, – we had no idea of what was going on. Like we had a, a dim idea of the fact that um, there, there had been, you know, it is, uh, there was a civil war going on in the north and the east. Mm-hmm. Um and there were rumblings of it. There had always been rumblings of it. And then by the time my parents had left, you know, they went there during 1982, the disaster of 1982 and 83, um, when there were sort of pretty much pogroms of within of the Tamil population. Yeah. So we had a very dim idea of what was going on. And, um, you know, this is back in the day before the internet, so you just wrote letters to each other. And, and one, that was one of my enduring memories of childhood was mum getting aerograms. So, um, but it eventually, but what had turned, what, what happened was we didn't realise that there was actually this sort of communist insurgency in the South. And so there's basically political 
chaos and upheaval and violence all over the country. Um, there was a lot of unemployment and we would see lots of young men lining up to join the army because it was a guaranteed job. So that would be for the north and the east. And then when uh, in, in sort of the southern areas and the central hill country, um, it was livable, but there was always this sort of uh, underlying fear of a sense of mm. a threat because you wouldn't volubly speak your political beliefs too much um, if you proclaimed your allegiance to the government or the army and the insurgents would attack you and if you declared any kind of allegiance to them then that then the army would um, attack you and so everyone yeah. you know we would have there were there were there was a time I think for six months when it was martial like it was curfew from 9 p.m and you know go for a week or something or a few days at a time uh, and you, you know, and I didn't speak Sinhalese, and when I could understand, what was I had a vague idea of what was going on, and I couldn't understand the news because written Sinhalese and formal Sinhalese that they use for broadcasts and for writing is very, very different, and uh, so I didn't fully grasp what was going on. But you know, you have an idea of what's going on mm. when you see and the way that you're, the people around you, the adults around you react. So. Um, it settled down after a while, probably about a year, and um, I didn't go to school for about six months at that time because they shut all the schools and they shut the universities. Um, yeah. Uh, we were sort of lucky. We lived with – we were just, just sort of shuttling between sort of my mum's family home and my dad's family home. And so we spent some time on the coast where my mum was from because she's from around uh, a village near Gaul. And I was born in Gaul, and you might be aware mm -hmm. of the cricket ground that's in Gaul. And, yes. uh, yeah, very famous um, cricket ground now, uh, which I have never seen. Um, and <laughs> I, went for a, I went to school for a really short time at Gaul Convent, um, which is this beautiful, amazing kind of place. I think, obviously, it must be built by the British. And, you know, everywhere in Sri Lanka is these sorts of relics of colonialism, and it was incredible and uh, 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 churches and schools around the place and Gaul Convent was one of them, um, even if it was Catholic and it had a, a brother school and they had these massive gates is what I remember and these incredibly beautiful old classrooms in some of the main buildings and one of them had this stunning uh, laboratory with dark benches and so that's what I thought science was like, right? Great. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, well, we ended up coming back to Australia after a few years. And, and have flourished subsequently. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, we, we, I think, you know, ultimately it, I wasn't born here, but ultimately just kind of Australian bred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even my dad would sort of watch, you know, the man from Snowy River and we'd go, right, we need to go back. <laughs> yes, I hear that. So, Upali, what challenges you? What challenges me? Oh, where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> Maths is really hard. <laughs> sure, yes, it can be. Yeah, I, I guess um, my work challenges me. Um, I find uh, the political situation in the world challenging. Mm. Um, there's a whole range of things, I guess. I don't, I don't know where I'd sort of start there. Well, can I ask you about work? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, you can. What's your field of study? So I, my field of study is to actually 
to design nanoparticles that can be specifically delivered to diseased cells. So I try to make bespoke particles that mm-hmm. can specifically um, deliver a therapy to diseased cells. And so I spend a lot of time trying to create particles that will do this. Um, and I make them from different kinds of materials. And so it's uh, a lot of materials engineering, but it kind of draws on a lot of things um, from my biochemistry and molecular biology background, uh, from the immunology work and the cancer research that I've done. So uh, you've got to think of a model to test your particles in. You've got to think about what kind of covering your particles have and what you're going to try and attach to it, what kind of therapies and all that sort of thing. So um, it's really interesting because it's so cross-disciplinary. And while I've sort of touched on cross-disciplinary work before, this is like drawing in everything that I've done. And it's learning heaps and heaps of stuff as well. So, Are you making headway? (laughs) Um. Not necessarily. Uh, I've had a stint at a few different kinds of particles and it's, um, look, all, all, all we can say is that we had a go. <laughs> what they never report in science, right, you never hear about how, well, we, we've worked out that this coding doesn't work. Uh, we've worked out that this particular manufacturing process is not great or that it's toxic to cells or something like that. So that's something that I'm finding that it's um, – all the papers I might read about successful nanoparticles, it's when you look at them closely, it's sort of like, oh, that's actually a very narrow level of success uh, of uptake by the cells or um, something like that. But it's almost it's 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 still a lot of fun because it's 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 gains in chemistry, as it were, to make yeah. these things. I find that sort of thing super interesting. The dealing with things that are a molecular and even submolecular level, it just strikes. I mean, I'm, I'm a big guy to start with, but when we start to get to that kind of small level, it's just crazy. Yeah, it is. It's, um, it's. I think that's what I love about it. Uh, I love that it's so complicated, that it's complex, but it's also ultimately what really what I really enjoy about it is that it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, so I've always been driven by this desire to know how everything works and how the universe works. I want to know how and why. And that's always been the case since since I was a little girl. And um, for me, you know, it was like molecular, going to the molecular level is one way of explaining why things happen. So why do, why do you have certain biological processes? What's happening inside mm. the body at the molecular level for this to happen? And then it turns out that there are these inanimate, seemingly inanimate, you know, objects that are just sort of chemical entities that are so beautifully evolved to carry out all these functions without any conscious control. It's, it's just chemistry. It's just physics. It's just biology happening. Um, but the sum of it is a living thing. So, wow. Yeah. I, it's the aesthetic impulse that drives you as a scientist in the end. <laughs> when are you opening Jurassic Park? Uh, as soon as I can finish this thesis, um, I'll be opening a Patreon. I'm not sure if I'm half joking or not, um, but uh, as soon as possible, really. <laughs> I am 100% behind that. I will 
absolutely support the opportunity to go and see dinosaurs. <laughs> I think everybody would. I think it's um this has been interesting over the past years after being on Twitter and also carrying out my own research because I've actually spent a, most of my career as a research assistant. Um, which is interesting because it means that I ended up learning a whole range of skills that I wouldn't mm. learn otherwise because, you know, most science is about specialisation in a particular field. But as a research assistant, I have to go where the money takes me, you know, where, where someone yes. has, you know, a job available. Uh, so that's why I've sort of gone for material science and developmental biology in cancer research. And um, so when I've been on Twitter talking about science a bit more it's sort of like uh because we're always considering the ethical ethical side of what we're doing particularly when i was working in cancer research where i worked with um animals and i had spent most of my career avoiding working with animals um and so there's there's always this sense of you know are we doing the right thing are we using the smallest a number of animals that we can do we have to use them all that sort of thing and then there's also still part of you that's like well what would happen if we just did xyz experiment like what would really happen like if we just did a mutagenesis on this what happens if we put these Mm. genes into another animal and people do those experiments as part of their studies in developmental biology um but at the same time you want to make something new and different it's a ethical minefield (laughs) sometimes it's like well why don't we just go the evil scientist route Ethics, schmethics. I want to see a pteranodon. It's it's at least interesting as a you know as as an exercise, as an intellectual exercise to see. Well, can we do it? Is it at least theoretically possible? How can we? We do just it? end up with a room with lots of different Ripleys in it. Yeah, which is what everyone wants. <laughs> or you know, I think the 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 other consideration that you don't have in your theoretical, uh, you know, your 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 imaginary experiment is all the terrible in between animals that you would end up with and, and get rid of them. Wow! You're, yes, wow. Yeah. In the midst of this, Upali, mm-hmm. in a crisis or an argument, are you fight or flight? <laughs> Oh, well, um, I guess it's it depends on the situation. I think I used to be a lot more, a lot less, con, you know, uh, confrontational. I used to be a lot less, you know, state of fight. I used to be a lot more kind of um, conciliatory. I, I hated confrontation and conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still do really. I don't really like conflict and confrontation. But I think I've uh, gotten better at um, polite staying to fight (laughs) as it were where well this ties in really nicely then where is the line between public and private for you um i think the thing is uh i'm actually you know very private and what you might see on twitter is just you know maybe say 20 percent of my life um Mm -hmm. you know and so uh I think for me, um, I don't think I, I I haven't created a brand or a persona online. It's just sort of me being me, um, talking about whatever I think is interesting at the time. Mm. Uh, so I draw the line around, you know, I don't, I don't. Uh, if I find something funny, I'll tweet about it. But you know, I'm not going to go into detail about, say, my family's lives too much, sure. you know, uh, or my life too much or my location too much, um, all that sort of thing. So I guess uh, it's it's um, becoming a lot more defined around I'll talk about science and, and politics and maybe that's it. 
do you cop much attention, unwanted attention uh, around your scientific views, the stuff that you do share? Um, a little bit, uh, but I also have like an auto blocker installed on my Twitter. It kind of made life a lot easier. Um, but sometimes, yes, I it, I think actually before I installed it, I probably got a lot more attention um, than I did previously, and particularly in some of the early days that I was on Twitter, is I used to you know, engage in very good faith and with tremendous politeness, and then discover that someone was simply um, wasting my time and wasn't actually interested in, in in debate or an argument, which is you know something that everyone who ends up on social media learns very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, it was certainly a lot harder. I, I used to talk a lot more about you know anti-vaccination um, groups and so on. I used to Gosh. talk a lot more about climate change, um, mm-hmm. and yeah. I don't as much anymore. Um, and now I think probably the more uh, sort of emerging kind of irritation is from atheists, dude bros, uh, and from um, people like that, you know, these sort of science fan fanboys and girls who are very sort of single-minded, weirdly single-minded in their devotion to it. Uh, and so I get a bit of fallback from that and I get a little bit of fallback if I talk about feminism and racism, um, although certainly for... for talking about racism is um uh it's it's a lot more sort of subtle the response uh that you get to that Uh, yeah yeah i can imagine have you i mean being ultimately being an immigrant uh into the country and and our wonderfully checkered history (laughs) have you experienced racism firsthand much often um i think uh yes and no i'm so sorry about that (laughs) No one will even know the door shut. Yeah. I thought it was it was empty before, and then someone was uh, turned up. Um, so, have I experienced racism? I guess uh, Australia is not a place where, at least while I was growing up, racism was that at least overt in Tasmania. But it, mm. you know, I think I was very lucky to grow up in a place where people were wonderfully supportive, and you know, I never had this sense of, you know, nobody ever said anything to me when I was in primary school, no one ever, you know, suggested or said anything very direct towards me. But outside of school and outside of home and friends' houses, you you had the feeling that you were looked at and you were singled out you felt different. And that yeah. wasn't necessarily threatening. It's just this understanding that, you know, you, were, you looked very different from everybody else um, around. So it wasn't until about... Uh, when I was in high school in Melbourne that I sort of experienced actual overt racism and, you know, kids will make nasty comments. So you pass them in the hallway, that sort of thing. And um, I, I, I guess when I was growing up I also thought, well, since it's not as frequent as other people have had to put up with, <laughs> then it can't be that bad. Uh, but as I've, as I've grown older, I think um, Australia, like I said, the overt racism fades into the background and just becomes a... Uh, a place where you know fringes inhabit, but the structures of society are, are largely quite exclusionary and racist. Um, they, you know, the the subtle nature, the, the the subtle exclusions and so on within workplaces that you experience, uh, and you know that I've experienced, and my parents have experienced, and my brothers experienced. 
mm. um, that that happens. And so it's hard to call that out and it's hard to name it. Mm. So it's uh, difficult to then talk about. And then you decided to become a scientist, which is notorious, is my understanding, notorious for maybe some not so excellent equal opportunity stuff going on. Yeah. Um, I, well, I've always wanted to be a scientist, you know, since I was little. I mean, I didn't really, except for a few brief moments of like, I'm going to be an artist for six months um, or something, <laughs> you know. And, you know, of course I had to have paint sets and everything. Yes. Um, you know, you know, from the ages of six to ten, it's you might have a cool belief, but everything else has to happen in between. And, and so uh, I never really considered it too much up until university um, and so on. So it was – I started working when I was 16 in a, in a lab. So I finished high school and I was an international student. So I – was really, really lucky that someone uh, who had just moved back to Australia from the United States, um, she needed someone to take care of her lab. She knew I had experience working in a lab. Mm. Um, so I gained some experience in, in working in a lab when I was in high school because of the wonderful CSIRO student research scheme. Great. Uh, it, I owe them everything really. So I had this wonderful um, molecular biologist who taught me how to do everything basically in a lab, all the sort Excellent. of basic processes and basic instruments. So I was able when I was when I finished high school to just simply, I was lucky that this person had moved over, but she said, okay, you've got the capabilities. I barely need to teach you anything. So why don't you just set up my lab? Um, and so I worked there for a couple of years and while I was there, I never really thought of it as unusual because probably, you know, when I was in high school, the people who ended up doing physics, I went to a state school, so the people who ended up doing sciences were already a very small number. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's pretty much a 50-50 split, you know, male and female students and um, people pursuing any sort of higher mathematics or whatever it was was, again, smaller and smaller class sizes. So I never saw it as a systemic thing. And then when I started in this lab, the people who were working there, the other, the other sort of postdocs would say, you know, she's actually way more qualified than anybody else and she should, she should be head of department. And what I found was that as I went through uni, I'd be like, wait a second, there's not very many female scientists. I didn't think too much of it because there are very few, you know, the number of science students was relatively small compared to other, you know, disciplines or whatever it was. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, and then as you go on, you just notice, hang on a second, this is now 20 years ago and there's still the same number of female professors that I encounter uh, in faculties. So mm. what exactly is going on here? Um, it's also a bit different for me because biological sciences are a little bit different from the physical sciences. So there's a lot more gender bias, I think, but there's still gender bias within the biological sciences. Like it's not that much of an improvement in terms of faculty positions held by women. And it also becomes really clear because when you cease to be a research assistant, uh, if you're doing a PhD, uh, if you're doing a postdoc, um, it's, again, that sort of subtle thing where you can't necessarily say, well, that's, you know, you're, you might be afraid or reluctant to call it sexism when it actually is. Yeah. Um, the, the same kinds of subtle exclusions that, that occur. So, um, yeah, it's challenging, but... <laughs> Science is also really, really challenging. So, um, yeah. I guess we have an opportunity to work out how we want it, how we want the academy to look in the future. 
And I'm really, really pleased that there's a very strong sense of this growing movement of saying, well, we don't really actually think that we should accept harassment within academia um, and we don't think that we should accept this sort of uh, gender bias in in the academy either and we want science and we want the academy to be more open and more inclusive excellent that's yeah that's really important yeah and because you know it's it, again it's something you only realize in reflection when you stop being in a subservient role and it becomes really really clear because um there are a lot of scientists from many, many different backgrounds that I've worked with, but they're not popular yeah. images of scientists. They're not holding faculty positions. Uh, their Australian workplaces, some workplaces are still, you know, really largely white, and that's ridiculous that these people are not getting through. Um, it's ridiculous that we have a very uh, single-minded view of how a scientist or an engineer or a doctor should, well, doctors that don't have that problem, I think, uh, should look like that. Yeah. And people need to feel that they are allowed to be interested in these things and that they can access them. And that it's Completely. for all of them. And they're paying for this research. So, you know, <laughs> they should be. <laughs> How does your, well, daily, I guess, professional micro view of the world shape the way that you see it in real life, in the macro sense? <laughs> Okay. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm fond of saying that every day a scientist's ego has to be humbled. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I look, I've, I've, I've always, uh, I've, I don't think I've been a very confident scientist for a lot of my life, um, but we've always loved the theory side of it. And so what happens is you, you go in with this sort of, right, I'm going to do this, it's going to work. I've made all the plans. I've got all my controls. This is what's going to happen. And you do the experiment. Yes. <laughs> and then by the end of the day, you're like, God, this is terrible. I don't want to do this again. This, this is a disaster. And then some of the experiments run over. You know, so I, it's not even just day to day. It's like some experiments will run over the course of four days. And it's only four days later that I can work out whether the thing that I did on day one was any good. Um, and so it's a very complex <laughs> experience. Yes. It's not necessarily in the sense of, you know, I mean, you know, am I actually good at this and am I I good enough for this? But it's also the sense of uh, understanding that it's very, very difficult to discover something new and it's a very, very difficult discipline. And you always have to re-examine what you've done and consider, you know, what, what was missing uh, you always, you know, if an experiment fails, you don't just go, oh, well, bugger it, I'll just, you know, um, try again or forget it. It's more a question of you actually have to sit there and carefully troubleshoot what you might have done wrong. Mm. And that's sometimes, you know, like some, sometimes you actually have to be spend a lot of time doing that before you can go on uh, and just say, well, I'm just going to ditch that approach. So it's, it's humbling in that way. And so you become very, you have to become used to uncertainty and that's fine in the short term, although it makes it very stressful in the long term if you have deadlines. So, you know, I've got heaps of deadlines at the moment. And so it's like, well, I have to have something by X date, but it doesn't mean that it's actually, you know, going to be useful or it's publishable or something like that. 
so that's what I mean by sort of the kind of humbling process of <laughs> doing science. Um, so how does that shape my view of the world? Oh, I guess the thing is that it just, um, because I deal with things that I, I like complex systems a lot and I like, yes. uh, so for me, a simple explanation of the world doesn't necessarily work. And, um, you know, yes, some things are very, very simple and you can reduce them in science and outside of science to some basic things, some basic issues or values. But I just feel that uh, the really the entire planet isn't that simple. Society <laughs> and <laughs> politics isn't that simple. And so I don't, I can't, I find it hard to subscribe to simple, simplistic explanations of the world. So if you believe that, you know, um, as long as, you know, the, the free market is a, a pure and, uh, Un, you know, untainted representation of, of human motive and emotion, then okay, but there are other factors that you're discounting. Uh, so I don't think it's a simple, I don't believe in a linear world. You're meaning, you're meaning to say that the world is in a binary existence? No, I don't, I just think it's not like, you know, A plus B equals therefore, you know, this happened and this happened, therefore this will happen. Yes. So, Yeah. As for binary worlds, you look, this, it's possible that we live in a multiverse, but that's a, another topic altogether. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. It is. <laughs> what are you going to achieve in the next 12 months? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I really hope that I can achieve a thesis. <laughs> yes, tick. Um, and I'm hoping that we can do a bit of, you know, expansion and growth of real scientists and do some fundraising for real scientists, uh, which yep. is what I'm involved in. Um, but really, I think my primary focus in the 12, next 12 months is is really getting the thesis done. And something that I, you know, related to what you asked earlier, which is, you know, what what does your 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 daily professional life involve, and what does how does it relate to the rest of the world? And it's a sense of being very present in what you do. Mm-hmm. and improving that. So one example I always like to talk about is when I was a cancer researcher, when I was a research assistant in uh, doing cancer research, um, I had never really dealt with cancer at that level before where we were treating models. We were trying to treat cancer, trying to see if this um, therapy would work. And we had to consider it from all angles. We had to use different models to see so we would implant a tumour and treat it and see what happened. And it was frightening to me to sort of watch the way these tumours grew uh, and the sense of helplessness. So, you know, around you, you're in a cancer hospital and then you can see how the tumours grow. You understand their physiology, right? And it's really remarkable. And then you actually treat them. And then we were really lucky in this instance of hitting on on a winner, as it were, and finding that the tumours would respond to this therapy, at least, you know, these model tumours responded to this therapy. Yeah. And so for all the time that I did these experiments with a tremendous amount of commitment and dedication, the work would go well. And if I was distracted or upset, I found that the work wouldn't go well. And so that sense of mindfulness and being present in what you do matters even in science. And um, I guess uh, someone, a student asked me that once, you know, does how you feel affect what you do? I was like, well, yeah, it does. It really, really does. You're going to be a busy lady. Oh, yeah. 
you really have to shut everything off. That's what I found. Um, it is kind of, a, you know, an unfortunate side line of science or, you know, it's, a, it's an unfortunate feature of science rather that you ultimately, if you're going to do research, you do have to shut a lot of the world out. So I think there'll be a lot less social media time uh, over the coming year and uh, Boo. <laughs> yeah, no more crazy dinosaur tweets. Um, but, uh, but it's, it, it is another uh, aspect of research. You really just have to be absorbed in it and you don't stop thinking about it. You know, you never stop thinking about it. And um, I really like that aspect of it. So, uh, yeah, being, being really, really absolutely involved in the research is going to be me for the next year or so. Wow. Thank you so much for the chance to speak with you today, Upli. I really appreciate it. Please know that the things you've said today are very special and you're highly valued. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. It's lovely to talk to you too. It is obvious that at least at the moment, while, you know, there's no deadlines, you're on Twitter. Um, what other social <laughs> no, accounts do no, you... No, it's, it's there. I, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just there for, the, for our third birthday celebrations or so I keep telling myself. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what other social accounts do you want to admit to? Um, I do have a science or plea account. Um, which is meant to be pure science, but honestly, I've, since TweetDeck keeps collapsing on me, I've it's it's almost been abandoned, and so it's just you know my main Twitter account. But I also have an Instagram account. If you want to see lots of photos of clouds, I have a locked Instagram account. It's Upoli Nine. <laughs> but lots of photos of clouds, so I'm not really sure if you've been to it. <laughs> um, and I'm also on Peach as Upoli, and sometimes I do remember to look at my iPad. So if you do want to join me on there. Maybe I'll turn up in three months again. <laughs> Once it's all submitted. Yeah, that's right. This has been Humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at Upoli is indeed human. <laughs>